So we're, we're live on Twitch, which is usually used for people playing video games and other people who are watching them. So I thought I'd actually ask you, start by asking you about video games, because you, you've mentioned them before. Uh, you said recently in a lecture that uh, philosophy students today should study video games. And I was wondering if you could expand on that. First, I must say I consider myself too old, too stupid. I don't play video games. It's kind of a form of what my friend Robert Fowler would have called interpassivity. I enjoy it through my younger star playing them. Uh, the reason I think they are so important is, okay, money is money. But nonetheless, one should note that I read that already two, three years ago, video games turned around, began to turn around more money than movies and TV series together. We are talking about enormous sums of money. Now, we could adopt this conservative Marxist standpoint and say this is just another cultural manipulation, whatever. I don't think it's as simple as that. As I will develop in my new book, Sex and the Failed Absolute, appearing in September, sorry for this short bit of propaganda, what I find interesting in video games is that a new sense of temporality, which I call it the vampire temporality, temporality of undeadness. Like you die, you can start again. It's not our finite universe where you make a choice, that's it. You can step back and do it again and again. It's a kind of a circular universe. And I think this type of temporality is gaining importance even in our so-called real life outside video, outside video games. For example, I noticed from people that I know, they already discuss, if they talk about it publicly, their love problems in this way. Okay, I blew it up, maybe I should ask my partner to just step back and begin again and so on and so on. So this is one extremely important feature. Our basic sense of temporality is changing. Second, uh, uh, in the primitive old times, uh, uh, the structure of video games was basically very simple. Uh, but now you also get very complex narratives. And I think that we cannot understand, again, what is happening today with narratives, with our storytelling and so on, without following what goes on in video games. What I like about video games is precisely this idea that it's not simply in a classical narrative, like as in a classical narrative where what happens, happens. To understand what happens, you must include into it all alternate possibilities of what might have happened but didn't happen, and so on and so on. So we get some kind of a pluriverse, almost. I know I'm using here the term not in a precise scientific sense, but something that in quantum physics is called superposition of states. No, it's not the same as multiple possibilities. Sometimes to understand what it is, you have to understand all other alternate versions of what might have been. It's because in our usual life, there are possibilities. But once you make your choice or fate makes a choice for you, that's it. Other options are out. 
here we live in a different universe. So again, we are talking here about very basic things. How do we experience ourselves as subjects and so on and so on? I think to provoke you with the rad or the kind person who raised this question, I don't know if it was you or somebody else. This person I think that, okay, okay. Then maybe the best shortcut to understanding what is happening today with our subjectivity, how it is changing, is to look at video games. Okay, I, I'd like to go on and ask more, but I realize we have limited time, so I will move on. A lot of I'm sorry, have, yes. No, but, it's, yeah. it's fine. A lot, thank you for being yep. here, by the way. We really appreciate it. Uh, a lot of people ask, have asked me about oh, uh, okay, okay. your debate with Jordan Peterson. Uh, the topic is happiness, <laughs> capitalism versus Marxism. And if I'm understanding you both correctly, neither of you place very much value on happiness. Uh, so is the title of your debate misleading? No, uh, you know what's my hope for this debate? I consider it pure madness. People think, you know, the duel of the century, who will win, who will lose. Well, it will be very sad if we will descend to that level. We are very different. And what interests me, that would have been something interesting, don't you agree, is to, uh, to focus on points where we share, where it seems that we share an opinion, but then apropos of this, what appears as a shared point, to make all, to make all the more clearly visible the difference. You know, the true difference is when you say the same thing, but you mean something different. Okay, my direction. I will just give you two, three hints, which may be of some interest to our public. First, the title. <laughs> I will probably begin. I haven't yet decided. I decided to begin to think about that debate two, three days before, when I will already be in the United States and Canada. But one proposition a starting point came to me today. Is there a country where the three are united? Instead of think in, thinking in the terms of alternative communism or capitalism again, is there a country today which combines the three? I think it's today's China, which is maybe our future. On the one hand, China is in some sense capitalist, even a very brutal capitalism. On the other hand, Communists are still in power. And what is the result? Let's face it. And I'm not saying this in order to praise China. Quite the opposite. But let's face it. Was there ever in the history of humanity a greater economic miracle? Explosion in diminishing poverty they, and so on. Then in China in the last around, I don't know, 40 years or what. It was an absolute miracle. Never were in such a short time so many people raised above the level of poverty and so on. And who did it? My point is that you need both to achieve this. Neither capitalism alone would have done that if China were simply to enter capitalism with some form of parliamentary democracy. I'm a pessimist here. It would have meant probably a much more chaotic situation and so on. If it would be only the old-style communism, also, obviously, 
There wouldn't have been this economic miracle. So you need both. This, for me, again, is not praising China. Quite on the contrary, don't we live in a sad world where what the left hated most in the 20th century, on the one hand, pure unbridled capitalism, on the other hand, a strong totalitarian or at least authoritarian rule, you combine them both, you get the most successful (laughs) economic model. Now, just to conclude, where does uh, happiness enter here? Ah, I am following, it always interests me, how does the Chinese Communist Party legitimize their or its authoritarian rule? It's by systematically evoking happiness. Of course, in their own traditional, although I think this is a fake invented tradition, Confucian way. Harmony, happiness, this is the ultimate goal of our new, as they call it, uh, uh, socialism in the Chinese way. So all three, we have them there in China. Communism, capitalism, and happiness combined. Now my question to you and my public is, do you want that? Well, whether or not they want it is one question, but my question to you would be, how do we get there in the West? If you say that's the future, how does it happen here? I'm not saying it will necessarily happen, but I think that, and that's why I am, without any big illusions about Europe, Brussels bureaucracy and so on. Obviously, there is something in the very idea of European identity, which borders the advocates of this type of approach. I mean, we are all moving towards this new type of authoritarian capitalism. Capitalism which combines, on the one hand, the global market, full participation in global market, but at the same time, uh, a kind of a nationalist, patriotic, local tradition roots, and so on and so on. And it's quite breathtaking, you know, this is maybe my private perverted pleasure. I like to read different conspiracy theories, uh, right-wing madness, and so on. It's interesting how, if you look at the most radical right-wingers, for them, the enemy is not even Islam, it's Europe. Their idea is that the basic anti-American, if you want, entity is European Union, and that they even control Arabs uh, to engage in terrorist acts and so on. Somehow, some undescribed European elite is behind it. And they openly say that uh, <laughs> Brussels is the new capital of evil and so on and so on, whatever. So, my question is, what bothers them so much in Europe? Because let's look around. Trump ideology is absolutely anti-European. He now, he didn't send it. Okay, but Steve Bannon came to Europe now and it's, again, making a great effort to support all these local populist movements to destroy European unity. Putin, as we all know, is doing exactly the same. It doesn't matter. Putin is here very brutal. It doesn't matter if you are... uh, right-winger or left-winger, anything, Brexit, Catalonia, uh, Orban in Hungary, just that you ruin, you want to decentralize whatever ruin European Union. And this 
is an enigma for me. So will Europe succeed in resisting this? I doubt. I'm not an optimist here. But nonetheless, I think that what does, and I'm not talking now about the miserable Brussels reality. Although maybe I should tell to your viewers one thing which may interest them. You know, a friend of mine, when uh, Brexiteers claim that Europe means Brussels, international capital, (coughs) sorry, and some leftists claim this then limits our ability to have more rights for workers, more leftist measures, and so on and so on. Listen, it's very interesting to look at the list of conflicts between European Union and British government or successive governments. In most of the cases, I was absolutely on the side of Europe. Most of the cases were at the level of, I remember from Tony Blair years, uh, Europe wanted to impose some basic ecological measures about pollution and so on and so on. British government protested, oh, it it threatens our uh, competitiveness and so on and so on. Europe wanted to maximize the workload, how many hours per week a worker can work. Again, British government uh, protested and so on and so on. So that's my basic reproach to Brexit. The reality of Brexit will not be more rights for workers. It will be probably the opposite. But if you are asking me what to do, I don't have a clear answer. I'm a pessimist. Do you have any sympathy for the idea that it's the principle that matters rather than the actual laws that would be passed? It's who passes them. Uh, You know, it's very nice to speak about principles, but I coined recently a term, principled opportunism. You know, like uh, many of my radical leftist friends, are telling me not in the sense in which you meant it, but like even if our politics is totally utopian and so on, utopian in the simple sense that it has no chance of being actual, what matters is that we stick to our principles. Well, I'm telling them, and I learned this lesson from communism, uh, that uh, this is a very comfortable position. Like the most comfortable thing in the United States, they have that small revolutionary communist party, Bob Avakian, their leader. They pretend to be radical. All others are opportunists. We are for revolution. I always was telling them, if I, let's imagine, I don't know if it exists or not, some secret fund in FBI, wherever, to prevent radical change. If I were to be the manager of that fund, I would have financed immediately this revolutionary party and so on. Because such a pseudo-radical position effectively obliges you to nothing. You know, you can be very comfortable, your conscience is always clear, and so on and so on. I learned this in communism. Why? In the last 10, 15 years, in slightly more liberal communist regimes like ours in ex-Yugoslavia, even more in Hungary and Poland, I noticed a wonderful phenomenon. If you were radically critical against communism, like you wrote a book claiming communism is worse than fascism, blah, blah, all this, if you remained at a principled abstract level, no problem. They even, I know cases, this kind of a 
contractual dissidence, contractual in the sense that you made a deal with those in power, was even part of the game. I mean, like they paid you for the trip to the West to participate in. What was not prohibited was something much more modest but concrete. Not communism is the worst, who cares about that? But let's change that law which prohibits, you know, these detailed small things that matter. Let's change our penal code and so on like this, like that. You know, real changes never are never accomplished in a, this principled level. You always need a concrete pretext, like even, although I'm very critical of them, yellow vests in France. It all began by raising the price of, of gasoline, I think, and so on. No? Yeah. So, uh, uh, my my and my general conclusion is here. It's easy to be principled, but I am tired of this principled left, which likes to organize some big event and then they are ecstatic and live from nostalgic memories for decades. Like, oh my God, one million people on Tahrir Square, one million people in front of the palace, government palace in Athens, whatever. No. I hope we agree that for me more and more, the true measure of the success of a revolution is not the ability to organize these big events where we all cry, oh my God, how wonderful we are all together, is how, if any change can be detected afterwards when things return to normal. Is there any progress there, which again can everyday people feel in their lives. And I'm not always a pessimist here. Although, for example, the legacy of 68, May 68, is very mixed. But one thing is true. It's the legacy of the 60s that we today are no longer allowed to speak in a certain brutal way about gays, about women, and so on and so on. There was a certain quite considerable change in, let's call it, public customs, public manners, which persists today. Again, you cannot make fun in the... I remember, this may amuse your, our listeners, I remember my father was this type of old guy. He considered himself open, democratic, liberal. <coughs> but privately, he was telling me such vulgar, anti-gay and so on jokes that even now, it's the stuff of my nightmares, you know. I, I awaken in the, in the, like, let me, no, I don't want to tell them I would be attacked. And it's even embarrassing for me. Just, I emphasize the incredible vulgarity of it. Things like this are no longer possible today, at least not in public. Sorry, this is some kind of a progress. I talk too much. It's Go fine. on. Moving on to culture. Uh, some... Who have I got here? Matt Esports asks, do you like the films of Paolo Sorrentino? You mean... Uh, he did uh, now, Youth, the young, the young Pope, the TV series. Uh, what else did he do? He did... Yeah, uh, but not excessive. You, know, you, must, uh, uh, you must take into account something. I'm getting old. My eyes hurt and so on. It's very physical, what I will say. My abilities are limited and so on and so on. So... I must say, I, apart from watching some of the installments of that series, The Young Pope, uh, 
I, I don't know his work a lot. What I nonetheless, up to a point, liked is this idea that, as my friend Alain Badiou recently said, commenting on the yellow vests in France, he said in French, I will immediately translate it, tout ce qui bouge n'est pas rouge. The lesson today is all that moves, protests, revolts, and so on, is not necessarily on the left. That's, for me, maybe the most significant lesson of today's anti uh, of today's revolts, yellow vests and others, that in our old universe, we have the government, financial institution, blah, blah, and then from time to time, people explode from the left. Now, the new populist right appropriated this energy of protest. That should worry us. And where do I see the similarities? What I like in, the, in that series is that precisely the true force of radical reaction is not some young progressive, it's not some old pope, it's precisely the young revolutionary pope which is the most dangerous one that you can imagine. And my friends from all countries told me the same thing, like when I was recently in Spain, they told me that now they remember kindly the conservative prime minister Rajoy from a couple of years ago, they told me he was conservative, but at least he was sticking to that forum. He didn't want radical change. Now you have their liberals who want to demolish a welfare state who are much more radical. So now we live in such a sad era that against this popular right-wing revolt, we almost nostalgically idealize the old authentic conservatives. So again, that's my interest. Otherwise, I must say, I don't want to disappoint my speakers, my listeners. All I can tell them about my taste about moves and so on and so on is that I agree with Spike Lee. How is it called the movie which got the Oscar, the Green Book? What type of book? though? The um, movie... I've never seen it. ...about the white, white limousine driver, the great book, whatever who takes on a tour in the Old South, a black gay piano player or whatever, musical player, and then this... It's the most disgusting politically correct movie. It's the way political correctness stifles, obliterates all real emancipatory dimension in the fight against racism. I think that although I made some... ...to publish it, critical points, or at least ambiguous points about Roma. I think Roma is infinitely like above it. And it's significant how, with all the compromises and very good strategy that Quaron made, Roma, although undoubtedly a much greater and more important movie, didn't make it to get the big reward. No. So you're generally pretty pessimistic about life, I'd say, but I've noticed that in one respect... <laughs> Absolutely. In but one, you know, all great respect. Marxists were privately pessimist. Bertolt Brecht was a pessimist. Adorno, I know, was privately a pessimist. Why do people think that Marxists have to be these idiots? You know, oh, life is nice, we are just corrupted by well, bourgeois decadence. Or no, life is big shit. I'd argue that you are like that in one respect, and it's when it comes to love. Can I read you a quote from Stevenson? Yes. 
who says, falling in love is the one illogical adventure, the one thing of which we are tempted to think is supernatural in our trite and reasonable world. The effect is out of all proportion with the cause. And that reminded me of your definition of an event. So I wondered to what extent you had love in mind when you defined event. I do, I do. And also when I say Alain Badiou, from whom I took the term event, uh, doesn't. Again, in English, we have, but also in French, I've written about it abundantly. This beautiful phrase in many other countries, most of the countries, whenever I go to a country from Korea to I don't know where, I always ask them, do you also, for falling in love, use this verb to fall? Which precisely means this shocking surprise. You lose control, you fall into love. And I claim, in spite of all our permissivity and so on, all the strategy today is to be in love without the fall. I was shocked at how <coughs> an American ad that I saw for organizing dates, uh, uh, dating agency, uh, used this very reference. Their ad was, you are a busy person, you cannot afford confusion, blah, blah. We will enable you to be in love without falling, without the fall. That's the horror of today. That's why my own thesis, yes, I agree with this religious dimension that you mentioned and so on and so on, although I'm an atheist, of course. I think that today we are approaching a strange situation where to be passionately in love is effectively more subversing than sexual promiscuity. This is why I'm also another horrible feature of me, negatively disposed towards uh, polyamory. I think you don't get real love there. It's this pragmatic calculation. I need this guy to satisfy this aspect of me. I need another person to satisfy another aspect and so on and so on. Okay, do it. I'm not a conservative. I don't want to prohibit it. I just claim this is not love. Okay, I had a few people submit questions about anti-Semitism on the left. Uh, to what extent do you think it is uh, making a resurgence? And to what extent is it a conspiracy theory? A very good question. I don't try to avoid it. Uh, let me first make this point. Uh, uh, I think that uh, the most dangerous tendency in this field is what I call, and I insist more and more on this, what I call anti-Semitic Zionism. That is to say, it's an old strategy of European right to oppose Jews, their too strong influence and so on, in their own country, but to fully support Jews in Palestine as the uh, 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 protecting Europe from Muslim invasion and so on and so on. And so it's incredible how today, you know, when it all began, already some 20 years ago in the United States, when the radical Christian fundamentalist right, which was usually always anti-Semitic, all of a sudden discovered Israel. So, uh, and uh, although it's in a very manipulative way, because it says in the Bible that before Armageddon, Jews will return to Jerusalem and so on and so on. 
But what I'm saying is that uh, 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 I still think that on the uh, well, I disagree with both poles. So on the one hand, I don't buy the version, which is the version of some of my leftist friends, that there is no real anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is an Islamophobic construct and so on and so on. No, it is. It's obvious that in many Arab countries there is anti-Semitism and it's also clear how it functions in a very reactionary way. They focus then their hatred on Israel in order to stifle, to control their own outbursts which may topple local masters there, dictators and so on and so on. That here I, and also to give you concrete examples, my friends from, for example, from Malmo are telling me how effectively Jews feel endangered there and so on. So here I'm absolutely pro-Jewish. At the same time, I find it terrifying, abominable, how partisans of the Israeli state, how they use the accusation of anti-Semitism for something that is, for me, a quite legitimate criticism of Israel, of what it is doing on the West Bank. They all mention Gaza, they are firing rockets on Israel. Okay, okay, okay. This is one thing, but to all those partisans of strong Israeli state, I would simply ask them, but please, you can do it. It's not dangerous. Visit the West Bank. It's an exemplary case of this. I would say it's not so much police terror. It's more a dictatorship of, of bureaucracy, of endless legal regulations and so on and so on to, to stifle that. And you know what bothers me? How today, all of a sudden, here we can see where history is moving. Positions which were till recently official, internationally accepted positions like two-state solution and so on and so on. Most of the West Bank should be given to back to Palestinians. All of a sudden, all of a sudden are proclaimed anti-Semitic and so on and so on. Or at least a threat to the state of Israel and so on. This is what makes me suspicious of it. So again, my position is very idealist here, but I insist on it. It is that <coughs> our struggle for against anti-Semitism in Europe, and again, anti-Semitism is strong, go to Poland, go to Hungary, and also some other Western European countries, and our struggle for the right of West Bank Palestinians should be part of the same struggle. If we don't insist on this, we lost our soul. This is why the most immoral, disgusting position is, for me, the position, a version of which we find on both sides. Like Palestinians say in Ljubljana, here in my town, there was a pro-Palestinian graffiti on a building which said, if I were to live in Gaza, I would also have denied Holocaust and so on. In the same way, radical Zionists are using the same argument. Basically, they are saying we suffered so horrible 
Holocaust and so on, how can you uh, measure us? In, uh, how can you appre- uh, uh, how, how can you criticize us what we're, we're doing there after all horrible things that we suffered? I find this a terrifying position. I, when my Jewish friends, okay, very few of them, most of them are much more open, tell me about Holocaust, Holocaust, and so on, as if this justifies whatever the state of Israel is doing, I'm telling them, you are now doing something sacrilegious terrifying. You are using mega tragic crime event, Holocaust, to justify intricacies of your daily politics on the West Bank and so on and so on. But again, just compare what is today considered a anti-Semitism for what was 10 years 15 years ago, considered as a standard possible solution accepted by, by everybody and so on and so on. You can see how, how things are changing. And again, here I'm a pessimist again. What especially worries me is Israel's more and more often link with most disgusting conservative Arab states like Saudi Arabia. I read this in big public media, they are now directly already half militarily collaborating, their, their, uh, their secret agencies are collaborating. Even, you know, when Israel a couple of years ago already wanted to bomb Iran. Now we know that Saudi Arabia put pressure on Israel, wanted it to bomb Iran, and so on and so on. This is the formula of a, of a catastrophe in the long term. Uh, I've often heard you say um, the job of critical theorists to ask the right questions. Uh, it seems to me that it's more difficult to know these days who we should be asking. There seems to be a, a power void, especially if you look at British politics at the moment. It's not clear who's in charge. Uh, what do you think um, of this? It's not just the United Kingdom. Yeah, it's course, all of you. Of look, let me tell you something which may amuse you even you know, the old Marxist paranoia dream was in reality there is some secret power center which decides everything. The fantasy was that, let's say in the United States, once a year, somewhere halfway between Wall Street and Washington, all through decision makers meet and decide everything. Isn't your impression, at least it's mine, of European and British and other politics that my God, if at least there were to be this type of center of power, who knows what it is doing? There doesn't seem to be such a secret power or whatever. It's the, or I'll put it in this way, the ruling class, not in the strict Marxist sense, but the political ruling elite, is simply losing its ability to rule. And I'm not as an evil leftist praising this. Uh, the ruling elite, it's their duty to know what they're doing. If they don't know what they're doing, it's a very difficult situation. It's a dangerous situation. And if I were to be a leftist, if I am a leftist, I wouldn't be too glad about it. Do, do you think there are par- parallels with uh, what happened after the, the death of God uh, going on in politics? If we have that same sort of vacuum in political power, Will there be any parallel effects? Yeah, but I, okay, uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't like to uh, 
mention too much this death of God here, although I consider myself an atheist Christian, no, I'm rather on the side practically of, Christ, of Christopher Hitchens, you know, in the sense that uh, on the one hand, yes, religion is not just, uh, 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 it's not just uh, uh, some uh, obscure dark force as we learned from Latin America and so on, it can play even in processes of social emancipation, a very progressive role and so on and so on. On the other hand, and here I'm also in some sense criticizing Stalinist communism. You know what? Uh, I think it's Steven Weinberg, that quantum cosmology guy who wrote a wonderful book, The First Three Minutes, about the Big Bang. He said somewhere, I quote this in one of my old books, that in a world without religion, good people would have been doing good things and bad people bad things. You need something like religion to make good people do bad things. Mm. And that's the function of, 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 of fundamentalism today. And in a similar way, uh, I read a couple of memoirs. My hero in the Soviet Union, early dissident Viktor Kravchenko, who emigrated to the West. His story is very tragic. He was an honest people, uh, sorry, an honest communist dedicated people. Then he was sent to, Ukra to Ukraine in the early 30s to fight rebellion when there was a uh, big hunger there. And he was simply devastated by what he saw there. What devastated him was what? Precisely this logic of when those in power want from you horrible things, pogroms, uh, uh, killing, torturing ordinary people. They present this to you as your highest sacrifice for the revolutionary cause. Yes, if you are really faithful to our cause, you must be ready to do horrible things and so on and so on. And this, isn't this more than true today? Which is why, as I emphasize again and again in the last years, as Jacques Lacan, my psychoanalytic mentor, emphasized it also all the time. Dostoevsky was totally wrong when he said, uh, 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 if there is no God, then everything is permitted. No, religious fundamentalism means precisely that. If there is God, of course, God to whom you claim that you have a privileged contact, then everything is permitted to you. You can bomb nations, you can rape, we saw it in ISIS state and so on and so on and so on. So again, I, I, I think it's so, even in a very naive sense, empirically wrong, this attitude that if we take some transcendent value, higher authority from the people, they will all become egotists and murderers and so on and so on. First, this is a wrong perspective. First, evil has nothing to do with egotism. True evil is envy. True evil is, I don't even care about my welfare. It matters more to me to destroy you than to enjoy it myself, you know. That's the logic, which is why the deepest German idealist, like Schelling, the companion of Hegel, although they took different paths, said somewhere that true, brutal, radical evil is much more spiritual than ordinary goodness. True evil is spiritual. In true evil, you're not an egotist who cares for you caring for your egotism and common good are easy to combine. 
every egotist knows that it pays even for you in the long term to be kind with other people and so on and so on. Second thing, I don't understand the simple immorality of people who claim without some higher transcendent authority, we can do anything. Sorry, let me take a pathetic example. You see a small child drowning in water. And let's say you are an ethical person. You jump into water to save. Don't tell me that your reasoning is, oh, as an egotist, I would prefer to run away. But my God, maybe God is observing you so not to screw. Nobody reasons like this. You, you just have to do it. It's an immediate decision. That's the ethical stance. While we're on the subject of religion, um, you sent me an interesting text on Catholicism <coughs> recently. And uh, following on from that, I was wondering if you think the Catholic Church can exist as an institution without that perverse underbelly. Does that make any sense yes. as a yes. scenario? Yeah, uh, I, I, don't, I cannot provide a definitive answer. Maybe it can, maybe it cannot. I don't know, for example, what's the situation in Latin America. Is this explosion of pedophile cases? And the only thing I know, and I, the, my judgment is based on the reaction of how church reacted to pedophile scandals in this very protective way and so on and so on. The only thing I can say is that clearly this, and uh, uh, the cases of pedophilia are integral part of the identity of today's Catholic Church. You cannot say that it's just an empirical fact. There are pedophiles, everything, so they're also in the Catholic Church. It's more radical. But uh, first, I don't want to focus just on Catholicism, so I cannot say what happens with other religions and so on and so on. For example, my Greek friends are telling me that the corruption in the Greek Orthodox Church is breathtaking also. So I, I don't have here a clear opinion. I don't want simply to write the Catholic Church off. We have a question from Dave Bikinis, who says, uh, how do we account for the renewed desire for order, certainty and power in today's populist politics? And he cites examples of slogans like Trump's Make America Great Again and the Brexit slogan, uh, Take Back Control. Uh, this is first, I think this is uh, this is OK. It, it will be uh, what? Sorry. Uh, my first idea here would have been this paradox, that's how they talk about order and so on. But wait a minute, with their economic politics, they are creating even more disorder and so on. The element of order in Europe is nonetheless European Union and so on and so on. They want order and deregulation or whatever. No, I also want order. I'm very, to put it ironically in quotation marks, totalitarian here. I, I'm not a partisan of disorder. I don't see anything emancipatory in social chaos when public authority uh, disappears and so on and so on. My God, did these people really ever experience this? I remember I was young. I was there. Paris 68. Yes, there was chaos in Cartier Latin. But then 
all the protesting students in the evening, it's horrible what I will say, they withdrew to a slightly safer area, uh, Rive Droit, north of Notre Dame, and then sit there nicely in cafeterias and drink their coffees, beers, and uh, exchange memories. What a nice day we had. You know, all the disorder there was against the background of. We are creating chaos here, but outside our well-ordered reality persists. And I have nothing against it. So uh, the, the more interesting thing is uh, why, why, does, why does the new right experience the situation in which we are now as the situation of disorder? I think they are not at the same time it's disorder, but at the same time they complain all the time about the strong state controlling us and so on and so on and so on. So I, I think again that this is a case of inconsistency of the of the uh, alt right. And okay. sorry, that leads to my final Maybe question. One more, and then yes. I will unfortunately one, one have to clap. I think that leads quite nicely into this question. A lot of people ask me what your thoughts are on accelerationism, and I'm guessing from what you've said, you're not a fan. Yeah, but I'm all, uh, now here I will, uh, my position is very boring. On one hand, I'm against accelerationism in this usual sense. It was advocated, it no longer is, if I know it correctly, years ago by Tony Negri, among others. No, The idea is that we should push capitalism even further at its most crazy, this double speculations with futures and so on and so on. Uh, and then this will then bring capitalism to itself destruction. Well, you know, uh, the problem is that from the very beginning of capitalism, people had this hope, you know, oh, it's approaching its end, let's push it a little bit further and I found this quite comical, like Marx described capitalism. And for Marx, capitalism was close to its end, approaching disintegration. Then Lenin said, OK, now imperialism, the last stage. Then half a century later, Mao Zedong says this uh, post-World War II imperialism, it's imperialism, capitalism in its highest, last rotting state, and so on. Then with postmodernism, this new cultural, you mean, like for over one century, this story goes on. We think capitalism is pushed to its limit, but it it's like an undead vampire or whatever. It returns stronger and stronger. On the other hand, I'm absolutely opposed also to any type of this, uh, uh, how should I call it? withdrawal to calm life, like that uh, we live in a crazy universe of capitalist dynamics, step back, learn to enjoy daily life, step out of this crazy capitalist dynamics, and so on and so on. I also disagree with this in a very standard way. I think that both these poles are part of the same capitalist logic today. No wonder that I read a wonderful analysis where they claim that Today in the United States, the preferred religious or spiritual orientation of top managers is a kind of a westernized version of 
Buddhism or whatever. The idea being we live in a crazy world, too much dynamic. We need to learn to withdraw into our inner life to find some peace and so on and so on. In this way, you function even better and so on and so on. So I think this is in some sense uh, a wrong dilemma. For example, the prospect which truly fascinates me now, I'm writing a new book on it, what Elon Musk calls Neuralink or what some others called singularity. This idea that we are approaching a point where we will be able to wire our brains to directly communicate even beyond language to participate in the same global consciousness and so on and so on. I don't think the right way is to say, oh, this is horror, end of humanity, and to step back. Yes, there are great dangers. We don't know what will emerge out of it. But it's crucial to confront it, to raise serious questions. Does this really mean that we will be kind of a, like the, all those ants in early, from early 50s, sorry, horror movies where they are no longer humans, they are just part of some global awareness, they lose their individuality and so on and so on. So I really think that something radically new is emerging, that gradually we humans will literally change our nature. Something maybe we should even call it post-humanity is emerging. But what will it be? We don't know it. It's a thrilling prospect. I don't think the right way is to step back. So in terms of accelerating the end of capitalism, do I understand you correctly if I say that your criticism is that acceleration just does not achieve that aim? It's just a fantasy. Is that essentially no, your... fantasy. No, it's not a fantasy because acceleration in some sense is a fact. What I'm claiming is that first acceleration is in the sense of, uh, often or as a rule relative. Again, new, although I know this rational optimist like Sam Harris and Steve Pinker all the time emphasize that poverty is diminishing and so on. Yes, but at the same time, as we learned from Piketty, differences are exploding. We are entering a new era where, as Peter Sloterdijk, a German conservative philosopher, emphasized, like one-fourth of humanity lives beneath the cupola in relative safety, Others are outside. That's why we have the problem of refugees. It's those outside trying to penetrate inside. And that's what Hollywood knew already 30, 40 years ago. I remember all those movies, Zardos and so on, where, you know, you have the elite humanity and those outside. This is gradually becoming our reality. So when you talk about accelerationism, I would say, yes, but let's see what are its concrete social effects, what is happening. While we're on the subject of film, if I see... New new distinctions. Maybe it's more and more a serious option. A new hierarchic distinction is emerging, which is much stronger than the old class distinction, if you ask me. I think that... Film, I just yeah. have one more question for you, and I'm interested in the answer too. Uh, Walrus asks, have you seen Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built, and what do you think of it? And that will be my final question. I'll let you go after that. I'm very sorry. Again, you see here my, uh, my limitation. In spite of his mistakes, that unfortunate uh, uh, 
answer he gave. Uh, although I had to laugh so much, you remember that answer at the Cannes Festival? Yeah, yeah. Yes, Hitler must be worried when he was bombed. Uh, now, an irony, I had to laugh so much, then I checked it. You know whom he practically from Trier quoted there? Ludwig Wittgenstein. I read a selection of his statements from his diary when in 44, early 45, he wrote, nonetheless, in spite of all his crimes, Hitler must feel now ter terribly isolated in that bunker and so on and so on. So uh, what I'm saying is that and this makes me the strange, misanthropic, pessimist Marxist. I admire very much uh, uh, mel uh, Melancholia, as for me, a very optimist movie, wonderful end of the world, an evil race left in the universe. I think this is one of the crucial movies. Then I like very much, did you see his, it's not his first, but his first relative success. In some countries it was called Europa, in some countries it was called Zentropa, about an American student going to Germany in early 46 to get a job there. And it, it's an excellent film and so on. So I think that uh, I still, I am not ready to renounce Lars von Trier. He is one of the great authentic ones. I'm just sorry not having the time. The one film I hate by him incidentally is, how is that one called about that uh, Idiots or what? No, about a group of people. Oh, it, um, who... I do say or something. Um, yeah, yeah, that one I hate. Yeah, yeah. It's the worst of this. Uh, uh, although it's ambiguous film, but most people read it as if if we let ourselves go into sexual orgies, idiocy, there is something liberating in it, and so on and so on. No thanks, I don't buy that. But otherwise, again, I admire it. You know why? Because. At the same level as there is another writer who is popular, but most of the left is horrified by him. How do you, I hope I will pronounce it correctly. Michel Welbeck, you know, yeah. elementary particles and so on. You may not agree with him, but he paints an excellent image of what went wrong with 68. Because, you know, already today's memory of the 60s is hippies, is drugs, sexual revolution, and so on. It's incredibly how already in the 70s, the 60s were mystified. The 60s were also very strong political movement. You have workers also striking in France. You had, uh, you had Black Panthers and so on in the United States. All this disappears, and now all that remains is uh, sexual revolution, new spirituality, and so on and so on. And this ended up in a deadlock. Again, as Marx has put it, we should not be afraid to learn from intelligent conservatives. They're usually conservative, not reactionaries. Reactionaries always offer a solution. Let's return to some idealized task. Conservatives, many of them are simply honest and say, we are here in great difficulty. There is no easy way out. I much prefer them to naive progressive liberals. Well, I'm with you on Melancholia. I think it's an underrated classic, and I'm in favor of any film where everyone dies at the end, like you. I wish Absolutely. It's my favorite Star Wars of the last series. How is that one called? Uh, uh, I've not, never it's seen not Star one Wars. Of the... I, I don't know. 
No, no, no. I don't mean the one of these big six, seven, eight, nine that they're doing now, but one of those, uh, how do you call them, side products where a small group is goes to a certain mission and they get what they wanted and deliver it, the blueprint for the Death Star, but they all die. Right. I was quite pleasantly surprised by this, I mean. Well, thank you very much for joining us here. It's been a pleasure. Okay. okay. I'm thankful to all who listen to us. And when I recompose myself, you know, now I feel so uh, tired, a little bit ill, that every morning it's for me an effort. You know, some philosophers like Husserl claim that uh, the ego has to uh, transcendentally constitute himself. But it takes me one hour, half an hour every morning to somehow put the pieces together and reconstruct myself as an ego. When I do this, I, I would gladly do it again. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you. Bye for now.